Welcome to History Edge, for teachers, by teachers. This is a History Teachers Association of Victoria podcast that supports history teachers to promote content understanding, skill development, and a passion for history in their students. I'm Lauren Trotter, and today we'll be exploring student stuckness. For this, our first ever episode, I'm joined by Victorian history teacher and HTAB presenter, Maddie Schmidt. Hey, Maddie. Hi. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah. Hanging in there with this remote teaching and learning? I'm very toasty in my Ugg boot. Excellent. I'm, I'm not sure about putting on actual shoes next week when we go back. Yeah, but that's going to be a bit weird. Um, now, I have to admit, in you know doing research for this podcast, as all podcast hosts should, I learned that you have previously been mistaken for a student while at work. Oh, yeah. More than once. More than once? Yeah. Um, even when I presented at the HDAV student lectures, I walked in and they said, oh, which lecture are you wanting to attend? Oh, I was no. like, I'm, I'm the lecturer. <laughs> oh, I love it. That is fantastic. I, um, I'm like, I turn 30 next year and I think I'm still getting asked for ID when I go to the bottle. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I can, I can relate. I am also in my early 30s and um, I've only been teaching for, I'm in my fourth year now and for the first three years the same colleague has mistaken me for a student at least once a year. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I have year 12s who regularly try, like, you know, say, you know, if, if I was wearing a uniform I would match them. I love it. It's fantastic. All right. So, Maddie, can you tell our lovely listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I'm a history teacher. Um, I've been teaching for six years, uh, two years um, at an Islamic school in the north of Melbourne and the last four years um, at a Catholic school down in the southeast suburbs, so both sides of Melbourne. Very broad, yeah. Yeah, well, when when I be, was a graduate and I was looking for a job and, you know, they were hiring maths and science teachers and I was history and English, I went where the job offers were. <laughs> as, as all good teachers will, I'm sure. Yeah, and I went in thinking I was interviewing for a middle school position, teaching year nine, and when they offered me the job, they were giving me a full VC load. Oh, wow. Yeah, so my Baptism first... Baptism of fire. Mm-hmm. My first year I taught year 12 history, year 11 lit, and two year 11 English classes. I was the only history and lit teacher. So... Oh, wow. I hope you had someone there to mentor you or guide you through that very yeah. confronting first year. Yeah, I did. Um, and he's actually teaching history back again this year for like the first time in ages. And he's going, okay, now you're my mentor. Lovely. Yeah. Perfect. And so then I've been teaching revs ever since. And then I kind of fluctuate in and out of the different year levels of English as the schools need me. Um, I joke that English is my bread and butter and that history is actually why I became a teacher. I think that's fair enough. Definitely. Um, and yeah. All right. Well, today we're addressing the issue of student stuckness or getting held up in a way that limits their success and enjoyment in the history classroom, which I'm sure all of us will have come across at some point in our teaching lives. There are so many different ways that we could explore this issue, but over the next 20 minutes, we've decided to zoom in on two different but oh so common forms of stuckness. Stuckness with organising and understanding content and stuckness with getting ideas down on paper. Sometimes I have observed in my classroom students, they're looking at their board, 
or at an activity that I've set or a page in their book and you know they're squinting their eyes and perhaps frowning a little bit and you can see that they're doing their very best to just get that content knowledge together, the big picture and put all the, the pieces of the history jigsaw puzzle together but it's not working. Is this something you've come across? Oh, absolutely. And especially when they look at a question and they read it and then they read it again, they're like, I'm still not sure what it's asking me to do. And that's where I'm like, get out your pens, get your highlighters. I'm like book listing highlighters every year and then stressing if you come to my class without highlighters, you know, just go to Officeworks today because you need them. And let's actually unpack what the hell this question is asking. So how do you use the highlighters to support students in doing that? Um, well, that's where like I'm very visual and I have to carry almost a big tub of texters with me to class because every different word gets like a different annotation. So we will look at a question and it says, explain what blah, blah, you know, the checker we're doing in Russia. And then you, you break it down and go, okay, what's the keyword here? And, and they go, oh, well, checker, that's the topic. I'm like, yeah. And anyone is just going to tell me everything that they know about the checker and they're going to word vomit on the page. And you're going to go, okay, cool. You'll probably get half marks for that because you've showed me historic knowledge, but you haven't answered the question. And so that's where we circle the checker and we say, okay, this is everything we know. And we get our word vomit out on the page and we scribble everything. And then with a different colour where it says, uh, the role they played in Russia, we underline that. And then we look at our word vomit and we go, okay, which bits actually address that part of the question? And that's where we start to go back in and we highlight which bits link to what the question is actually asking. And then from there you start to draw your plan about how your three ideas or so, or so about how it's actually answering the question. Fantastic. I love how you're not limiting their thinking from the starting point and they can just get everything out on paper in front of them and then they can pick which bits they want to keep. I feel like... Oh, but that's exactly the way I worked when I was in high school and in uni. Yep, for sure. I love it. Uh, what else have you tried that seems to work to support students in these moments? Any other ideas? I'm a massive fan of a good old-fashioned table of ideas. Um, a table? And so when she... Oh, yeah. So, like, I, like... Think like on a whiteboard, you draw up a whole lot of columns, almost like categories. And if you put a topic on your um, on the left-hand side, so you might say World War One, and then you put above the top all the things that they need to know. So you might say, okay, one column, dates. The next column, statistics of deaths. The next column, brief, like one-sentence summary, what it is. Your next column might be a primary source, what someone said about it, and then the next column might be what a historian has said. And then what I do, like for every dot point that they need to revise or they need to know for that area of study, I put those all the rows. And then I send that to the students and go, okay, fill this out. And somewhere along the way, one of the cheekier or smarter kids figures out that, miss, if I say World War One, 1914 to 1918, with you, know, um, 4.6 million men, but only six, uh, no, 6.5 million men, 4.6 million bullets, um, da 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 da. Okay, that's what you've been teaching us to do with our paragraphs. Like that's how you want us to write our sentences. That's very cheeky of you, Miss. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why I do it. So I yeah. essentially get 
how I want them to structure their sentence, like the, the pattern of their sentence and the pattern of their paragraph, and then I just put it in a table so that they are filling this in, like filling the gaps. But then I go, okay, now when you write your sentence, work across the table. That's great. What a great way, because I have found in the past sometimes, you know, you get some BC students and they're struggling with things like sentence structure and and ordering their writing and their paragraphs when you would probably, I suppose, hope by that point in time they had that down pat because you've got so little time to get through so much. Um, but that sounds like a really quick, um, efficient, but also effective way to help them start to see how sentence structure and even paragraphs should flow. So excellent. I can't wait to try that out. Um, I wanted to ask which areas of REVS do you tend to teach? You Russia, Chinese? Um, I used to teach Russia and China. And then when I moved to my current school, I they taught France. So I moved to Russia and France. I did that for two years. And last year and this year, I've gone back to China because I'm experimenting with an idea that perhaps students will feel more confident doing two communist revolutions together. Um, while the French Revolution is amazing and it's so cool and interesting, it's a massive hurdle to get students over. And in a mixed ability school where I have students who, you know, are really, you know, like that beautiful, gifted, you know, I've picked revs because I'm really strong. Then also I've got that, it's just really interesting, miss. I'm never going to read the textbook, but I'm going to pay attention. That's why I'm like, okay, maybe we need to move back into Russia, China, where it's, I teach it to you once. And then the second time you go, oh yeah, I've got it. I know what communism is now. Um, enlightenment and communism is just sometimes a little too much to get through, I think. I'd be interested to see how that experiment goes and hear what you find yeah. at the end of it. I think that sounds like a really good idea. Yeah. Um, some of the feedback I've had from students in the past is in particular with China, they struggle with names. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular strategy that you use with your students to support them in getting their head around names that follow, I suppose, different letter patterns to our own? Um, I'm a person who's really good with numbers and letters. So it's something that I didn't find an initial challenge, but I just make sure that I only use one set of names in every document. Um, and I use pinyin so that it's just straightforward. It's what the exam prefers. And I make sure that they write them down as much as possible. And I do say them phonetically. I know it's probably culturally insensitive, but it's so that they can, you know, spell it correctly. Um, I, I did have a student who last year kept saying Yanan because she and she was emphasizing it with this really Aussie Oka accent I was like yeah but that's not even how you spell it yep. correctly it's Yanan like with the apostrophe afterwards she's like yeah but it's Yanan miss like, oh, no oh, yeah yep. so oh, I, I just that's one of the beautiful things about history sort of an opportunity to to explore those those cultural differences and sensitivities that we all need to be aware of yeah, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with a good old spelling bee in the middle of a history class. Or um, Just because the year 12s doesn't mean that you can't test them on this. An examiner loves seeing a, um, a historically correct title of something. We just get a little bit gushy when we see it. Like, oh, yay, the student did it. And what about with Russia, with um, dates and calendars? Do you find students struggle with that at all? They do but I encourage them to chunk it um, thematically. 
So when we revise, I say you've got to do um, periods of time at a time. So you you do up until 1905 of the you know the early years of Tsar Nicholas's reign, and then you do the interwar years between 1906 to 1914 as the 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 reform years, and then you have the reform. I do the same with um, area study two, and I'm a little bit cheeky here, and I'm. I, I kind of insult any married person and I apologise to any history teachers on here who um, are, are listening because what I say is that in Russia Area Study 2, the revolution is the wedding where you've been forced together and you got <laughs> married. And then the first six months is the honeymoon period where everything is happy and you're learning these new things about your partner and it's all okay. The what civil war is where you start to realise is that um, maybe things aren't that great and you start to bicker and you start to fight and then you get to the Kronstadt Rebellion and that's when you realise that actually you're in this for the long haul, you do love your partner and it's a time to compromise. So we go honeymoon, we go honeymoon, conflict, compromise and then you have the long, you know, marriage together of communism. I love it. What a great way, the, the chunking to help them organise their thinking and also a, a cute way to remember the different periods and events that go on. Yeah, and then that way kids, they, they don't feel so overwhelmed by a whole area of study of time because they're like, okay, I'm just going to study this six months, 1918. Then I'm just going to study the Civil War, 1918 to 1921. Then I've just got the compromises and that's fine because I know most of it's done by then. And it just... Uh, relieve some of the stress and the anticipation of what they have to study by putting well, there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel at the end of each chunk. It's a lot easier to get started when you can see where you're going to be able to have your next rest break. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's have a look at an issue that I believe a lot of classrooms are struggling with at the moment, and that is supporting students to get their ideas on paper, down on paper in a well-organised manner. So we have touched on this already, but I'm I'm curious to see if you have any more strategies because sometimes students can have an almost instinctive understanding of how to put a piece of writing together. But for those who don't have that instinctive understanding, trying to learn to write, especially in history, can be really, really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the moment, I have quite a few boys who are just waffling for sentences. And when I say sentences, they're paragraphs with no full stops. Um, and I'm just going back going, what are you saying? Um, the first thing is short, sharp sentences. When not in English, you do not have to use flowery words and you do not have to um, use other words than the topic. Please use the topic in your answer and have short, sharp sentences. Absolutely. I once had a lecturer say to me, if the word doesn't need to be there, it should not be there. And I spend half my time cutting words out of their responses rather than adding them in. It's very hard to get them away from the adjectives that they use in English, I think, in the adverbs as well. Yeah, it's so ingrained. And I know I'm guilty of it when I do teach English, um, especially for a lot of the students who I have taught English and then they come into my Year 12 history class and they're like, Miss, this is so much easier than when you taught us English. I'm like, well, that's nice. It's going to get hard, but... <laughs> It's a, good, it's a good place to start. 
Yeah. I think the other thing, um, and I take this idea from a teacher, Luke Skahan, I think I said his name wrong, but yeah, um, he got me onto this idea of power sentences where for every topic you get students to create the best sentence they can come up with. And sometimes you do this as a bit of a, like a 10 minute writing activity where you say, okay, I want everyone to write one really kick-ass sentence on, um, you know, the July days. And then you get them all to submit them into you. Um, and maybe you pick the best one or maybe you, um, you know, mold two together and then you share that sentence to the class and then get them to put that in their bank of sentences. They then put those on flashcards and then they start to memorize that language. And so then when they're writing and they get a question and they have to embed information really quickly and they want to speed up their writing, they already have this not memorized response, but a sentence or two that has become familiar with them that they can then tweak into their answer to then respond to the question in front of them. Absolutely. I suppose it's like having a prepared starting point. And I really think sometimes getting started is the hardest part of any writing activity. I've had um, students, I'll, I'll present some content, we'll have a discussion. Student, a student might ask a question and I'll, I'll have a chat to them and they can uh, verbalise their interpretations and their, their opinions to me excellently, so articulately. And then they say to me, well, what do I write? And my response is, exactly what you just said um, but they find it's almost like the action of picking up the pen and putting it to the paper can be so disabling and so confronting um, do you have any ways that we can support our students getting over that I suppose fear um, yeah absolutely one of the things I have been doing is um, not lowering my expectations but just changing my expectations for where they are at this point of the year especially I, I do this in the classroom where when we, when I set a question we always brainstorm it but with um, remote learning as well like once so I've been delivering powerpoints throughout the week and I annotate over all the top of my powerpoints but then I also include their coursework questions and with each coursework question I put it on a slide and They'll only get like 30 or 60 seconds of me just saying, okay, looking at this question, let's actually see what it is. And then I'll just do a quick brainstorm for them on the PowerPoint. But also when we're in class and you know, next week we go back to school, I'm hoping that they bring all their ideas, is when I pose that question, I write down their ideas onto the whiteboard and then I just frame that opening sentence for them. And then you know, give them their contention, give them their like bits of their topic sentence and then even number here's your contention here's one two and three now you have 20 minutes to write and rather than giving them that free for all of go forth and conquer they go okay here's my opening sentence I've got it and then they can clearly go forward with that and it's just bringing their ideas down to the front it's the same as when you do a think pair share and you ask them to write down their ideas before they share them with the class well, now we're just writing their ideas down before they write their ideas down. I like it. It's sort of a, a little boost up, up the wall that they're trying to climb over. Yeah. Climb they do most yeah, of the work. Yeah, we're just giving them a little bit of a, a bit of a starting push. And I think this point in the year, that's what they need. Come September, maybe, okay, no, you should be doing the writing by yourself. But it's still early days. Like they're only finishing their first revolution now. For sure. 
Maddie, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. I'm sure our listeners will be taking away some strategies that they can incorporate into their history classrooms. I really like the idea of the, uh, the sentence building table and even annotated PowerPoints. All right, so we've got our last segment to do. So this is a fun little segment that we decided to include at the end of our podcast. I think we all like to learn more about our teacher colleagues, especially in the HTAV community. So here we go, Maddie. What inspired you to get into teaching? It's it's a question that I'm still not sure I know the answer to. I think first and foremost, I loved school um, and school was like ever since prep, it was this exciting place. But then especially in high school, it was definitely a, like a place of refuge for me um, and somewhere that I could escape um, and find solace in learning, but also in history books. Um, and it was just somewhere that I always loved being and therefore when I I knew from five years old that I was going to go to university I told my mum that she had to save up to support me going to uni not knowing that hex was a thing you know people save up for weddings and houses no no I told mum that she had to support me going to uni um she laughed but you know when I turned 18 I was like well I'm going to uni um and it just made sense um because I loved learning and why would I not continue learning um so then I wanted to continue sharing that learning and that love of learning I think um I'm just going to chime in for myself as a teacher I decided I wanted to be a teacher when I was in grade two because I thought I would have a tidier desk than my grade two teacher and her messy desk really really annoyed me um but I can definitely relate to the love the love of learning and the wanting to share that love of learning and make it exciting and engaging and yeah definitely can relate there All right, what is one thing you would like new history teachers to know as they are starting out? They do not have to have all the answers. It is absolutely okay to not have read the textbook back to front. I'm still, like, as we prep to go into China in a week's time, reading parts of Tom Ryan's textbook going, hmm, probably should have read that a few years ago. Oops. Yeah, but, like, you know what? My kids got through. They were fine. You know, schools were happy with my scores because I was passionate and I worked at the, my students' pace. And sure, you you will probably always have one student who is ahead of you in your notes, in your readings, and that's okay. I now challenge my kids and I say there is going to be at least one kid every year in my class who knows the revolution better than I do. I'm wi- I'm waiting to find out who it will be in this class. Which one is it? Yeah, and I do that. And they take it on as a little bit of a challenge. And, you know, when we get to um, October, I know that kid and I sit with them in the library and I'm like, so tell me about this event. I want to know more. And That's great. they thrive That's great. on that, like, that knowledge that have I, do I actually know more than her right now? I'm like, yes, you do. I teach five subjects. You only have history, what especially is- when they're year 11. I'm like, do you just care about this? What a great security uh, in that knowledge or confidence in that that conversation. What a lovely idea. Uh, what do you think is your teaching superpower? Oh, I think I get a little too enthusiastic about things. <laughs> I'm, I'm, one of the teachers said to me, he goes, I've never met someone so organised and enthusiastic. Like you're just, you just, get things done I'm like yeah 
I don't know. It's just I, I'm just very enthusiastic when I'm in the classroom. And if I'm having a bad day, you don't know unless I have the flu. And that's when the boys finally pick up that maybe Miss Schmidt's not okay. Um, but I'm so enthusiastic. And then I just get things done. It, it inspires them to get things done, or at least most of them. Makes sense. I'm going to put it out there and apologies to any of our listeners who are perhaps not as equally as organised as the two of us, but I have found if you're not a naturally organised person, teaching is extra difficult. Oh, absolutely. So much going on. Yeah, no, it thrives. And I think that's um, one of the reasons I did become a teacher. Thinking back to, you know, your grade two analogy, I remember in grade one just loving all the stationary options that teachers oh, had. yes. And, like, I'm guilty of spending way too much money at Officeworks on more highlighters that I don't need. But if Have you got the pastel ones? Yes. I've just discovered the pastel highlighters. Yep. And, like, my students yeah. know to get me stationary at the end of every year. That or, you know, coffee cups because all teachers need coffee cups and we leave them around on desks far too often. Half oh, we mark our territory with them. Yeah. But, like, organisation and enthusiasm, they're probably my strengths as a person but also my strengths as a teacher. Lovely. Good way to be. Uh, what is the most helpful thing a colleague or member of the history teaching community has done for you? Um, I, I think it's... It's been people's confidence. I remember when I was a graduate teacher, my mentor said, stop calling yourself a graduate teacher. You are an experienced teacher who knows their stuff, own it. And then as soon as I started, um, like, you know, you tick that box for HTAV saying, I'm interested in doing things. And Myra was, just kept offering and I just kept accepting. And then, I, and you know, you start to question yourself, but then every the the history community they've just been so supportive um and you know really really experienced teachers who've written textbooks and presented for years they've come up to me and said so when are you going to start writing oh wow and a bit taken aback I went oh wow okay well you have that confidence maybe I should too Mm, we are so the harshest critics of ourselves and it's so lovely when someone else can have that confidence in ourselves and we can kind of, I suppose, almost feed off that and well, if they have that confidence in me, I should have that confidence in me. Yeah. So I think other teachers have an, the confidence and taking the time to acknowledge it in front of you, that's been probably the nicest thing because we are we self-doubt is like such a, a thing that's a terrible sentence, but it's such a burden that we take on. Um, and I think that that's been probably the best thing. Lovely. All right. If last one, lucky last, if you weren't teaching, what would you be doing? Now that's a tricky one. Uh, yeah. And I've been thinking about this. Um, so <laughs> there's a couple of options. So because of my organization, I would be an assistant to an editor like Miranda Priestley in Devil Wears Prada. Nice. Or I'd be a librarian. Oh, that um, would be one of my choices. Or I'd work for like a publishing company, specifically one that like, you know, published textbooks or something. <laughs> who who knows? I might take a sabbatical from teaching in a couple of years' time and just go, hey, I want to go publish a textbook. Think of all the reading you could do though. Oh my, that's what's been so good about quarantine. Just reading all the time. I've currently got a book that I've just started, Voices of Chernobyl. Oh. Um, I 
did not know much about Chernobyl before I watched the the miniseries that came out I think last year and there was an accompanying podcast as well quite good just going to give that a plug but yeah this they got a lot of their information from this book and it's just been wow wow. yeah wow very very interesting yeah so cool all right Maddie was there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners of the history teaching community hi that's a question I hadn't thought of um no pressure just that as we move in these unprecedented times I think that there's this overwhelming feeling that history is not valued and I don't believe that's true that it appears that way but really it truly is in our students if you give them the time they will show you that they still find it interesting and fascinating and more and more I'm surprised by the students who I wouldn't normally suspect to be history lovers but who secretly adore it. And I think just give students the chance and they will show you that they do love it. Um, But it's also the responsibility is on us to make it lovable. Wise words there, I think. All right. A big thank you to Maddie Schmidt for joining us for our first episode and a big thank you to you, our listeners, too. We hope you've enjoyed listening and for more information, check out our show notes. Please give us a rating and why not hit the subscribe button?